Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. Um, First, I want to thank Nathan for discovering the air conditioner (laughs) on behalf of everybody. (laughs) Better than the blocks of ice I was getting ready in my freezer. The topic of the uh, uh, talk today is the third uh, paramita, Shanti Paramita, which is uh, the perfection of patience. Or as we've been exploring, taking whatever you think about patience and your experience of patience and, oh. (laughs) That's a whole other talk actually. And going further than that. Um, But in that spirit, I wanted to start with a story uh, that just happened uh, 10 minutes ago. Um, As some of you have seen, uh, my children are running around. And this is uh, a great gift uh, for them. And I hope it's a gift for you too. And you're not seeing it as a distraction. Um, It's really good for our family. Um, So... I had to write this down so I can remember exactly how it went. My son Olin's three, have you seen him? So here's what he said just now. Papa, you teaching? (laughs) Yes. All night? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I won't be home uh, until you're sleeping. You helping people? (laughs) yes meditation yes not talking (laughs) no not really can they come on trampoline (laughs) and then I said I I have to go now And then he said, uh, you helping people? (laughs) And I said, yes. And then he said, uh, people helping you? And then we had goodbye. So that's bodhisattva activity, isn't it? (laughs) It's interesting, you know, to sit up here and give a talk because like in a way, preparing for a talk and thinking about what I'm going to say is not just like, studying teachings or what other teachers have said or commentaries on texts, but also 
how the teachings show up in my own life and uh, how they come alive in my family and in my own body. Um, and um, I encourage uh, in your listening to these talks too, to also um, keep connecting them to your own practice and um, not listening to them as uh, ideas or good stories, but actually seeing how this relates to your own experience. And I don't just mean in this hall here, but your own experience um, reflected back to you. There it is again. Um, throughout this entire retreat. So as I said, the topic uh, today is uh, kshanti, um, which means uh, patience, tolerance, and endurance. Um, recently, I was at a monastery uh, called the Tassajara Zen Center in California. And uh, when I was there, I was spending my time with a teacher named Paul Haller, who's been going there for 40 years. This was his 40th year. And uh, I know some people who have studied for 40 years, but it's rare to find someone who studied in the same place on the same land for 40 years. So he had really great stories to tell. And he told me uh, that when he was uh, turning uh, 30, he had a huge question about what to do in his life, and he didn't know which way to turn. So he, uh, he went to his, uh, the person who was teaching at the time, uh, Katagiri Roshi, and said to him, um, went in for a meeting, sat down with him, and told him about his uh, dilemma, which Paul didn't share the dilemma with me. He just, and if he did, I probably wouldn't be telling you what the dilemma was. But, so he, he sat down to share this dilemma, and. Um, and then Kadagiri Roshi just sat there with him, breathing with him. And then uh, Paul thought, he's preparing for a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they sat and breathed. And then after a couple minutes, Paul realized that this was the response. So I'm telling you this story because I think this is a really instructive story about patience. The ability to really be in our experience, uh, breathing, feeling the situation we're in, without trying to solve our experience. And this is really important in our meditation technique that when you sit down in meditation practice, it's really important that you don't use that time to try and solve your problems. Meditation's not therapy. Uh, we're not using it to solve our emotional problems because one of the biggest differences between psychotherapy and meditation is that in meditative practice, we don't focus so much on content. We're focusing on the experience of the arising and passing away of content. And the arising and passing away of time. The arising and passing away of self. But not so much the details of content. And I experience this when I am meeting with you in the evenings. That um, always in the first couple days when people come in, there's a lot of content they want to explore. And then after a couple days, even the notes, you know, 
it becomes more about what's happening in your practice rather than content. So I almost want to say that even if your technique is really bad, <laughs> you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> kind of identify with that. <laughs> even if your technique is really poor, just the fact that we're sitting in community, all supporting each other and being supported by this land and the medicine of breathing, that the content all just starts settling. There's a name for this in um, Dharma theory called shamatha. And in every Buddhist lineage, Tibetan practice, whatever lineage you came through the door, you know, whatever door you came in through, they'll have some practice called shamatha, which just means calming down and stopping. The etymology of the word shamatha is really interesting. It, the root is sham, which is where you get the word shanti, which is both a noun and a verb, which usually gets translated as peace, but I like to translate it as ease, right? You can feel a sense of ease, and you can ease fixation. So you'll notice in the word kshanti is this word shanti, which has in its root form sham. Shamata, shambhala. There are so many places we, we find that term. In the yoga tradition, sham is the word for your soft palate, which is very interesting. If you ever, um, so first of all, does everybody know where their soft palate is? So take your tongue and press it into the roof of your mouth. Just press it into the roof of your mouth. You feel how it's hard? But if you slide it back, <laughs> you're very soft. That's called your soft palate. And when you have an aesthetic experience, your soft palate releases. If you see something beautiful, like a Mark Rothko painting, it's my favorite, or, or like any tree on this property, <laughs> or the three-year-old running around, you just go, and your soft palate releases. And I've always found it really interesting that the name for the release of your soft palate in yoga physiology is sham, is peace. So I would say that sham is a physiological description of beginner's mind. When you have beginner's mind, your viewpoint is suspended. And the physiology of that is your soft palate is released. And you can feel this in meditation practice. When your tongue is quiet, when the breath is at ease, the soft palate just lifts and spreads like an umbrella opening. Oh. It's like when you just go, oh. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you will in a couple of days. Maybe you're still like, oh my god, my knees <laughs> hurt so much. So the practice of patience begins with the ability to release your point of view, to find embodied breathing,
and to let go of whatever content is making you compulsive, has its purchase on you. Because ultimately, we will never understand what's happening for us. The present moment is always bigger than our understanding. And even though the mind is always trying to frame experience, once you've framed it, it's always too late and you've missed it. And in sitting practice, you just watch yourself doing this again and again and again, which is why we develop a sense of humor <laughs> as we practice, because we realize whatever frame we've just created, either for our own experience or whatever frame we've created about this retreat or how we frame somebody else is always too late. So instead, we do a completely different practice that's much less cognitive, which is the practice of non-separation, which is not separating from yourself, not separating from your experience. And I hope I've said this every day. Don't separate from yourself. And how do you do that? You make contact with what's showing up with your breathing body so that your breath is harmonizing with what's arising as it crests and changes. And you're not holding on to it either. For some people, it's easy to meet what's arising, but harder to let go of the meeting. So maybe this is how we could define intimacy, is not just having the courage to connect with what's showing up in our experience, but also the ability to let go of it at the same time. When you have contact, you have experience. You can't have experience without contact. That's why every day of this retreat, we go over and over again the somatic dimension of practice, the kinetic experience of practice, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breathing body, and feeling how your body, as you trust the body more and more, knows how to breathe. Because every moment is making a request of us, and our job is to meet that request. Oh, what's the request right now? In daily life, everyday life, which is also right now, if you ever have something that shows up and it's really hard to sustain contact with it, a really good practice is to stay with it just for five more minutes. So let's say you're feeling irritability with your kids. Say to yourself, Five more minutes. And when you're on a cushion and you're feeling impatience, has anyone felt this yet? <laughs> I love asking these rhetorical questions to people who are in silence. <laughs> um, when you're on your cushion, one practice that you can do is say to yourself, five more breaths. 
I said to some of you, you know, if you're, in, if you're sitting and the pain or the unpleasantness you feel is starting to become a hindrance and you feel like you need to move, it's okay to move. But first, wait five breaths. Wait five breaths. My wife, Karina, if you look at her left hand, she has a tattoo, a tiny tattoo between her thumb and her index finger with a Sanskrit number five because this is her practice. She's really good at this. And her practice is, um, she trained as a chiropractor, which she doesn't do anymore, but um, when she was working as a chiropractor, she was looking at that part of her left hand all day. So this was a reminder that when she was feeling impatient, and let's face it, for many of you who do helping work, you don't like every single person you work with. <laughs> And so sometimes when she was feeling like she just wasn't there, she would um, stay with it for five more breaths. Really good practice. Most of us think of patience as waiting for something or waiting for something to pass. But um, prajna patience is being exactly where you are. It's not waiting for something. It's being where you are. And isn't that the hardest place? <laughs> to be right where you are. And it's hard because everything's moving. And when you're within that movement, when you're within that movement, every step you take is exactly where you are. So how can you settle your breath on every single step? So you're exactly where you are, moment to moment to moment. So again, the prajna of patience. So this isn't just patience patience. This is prajna patience, which is understanding patience not as waiting for something. Because when you look at it more closely, even waiting for something isn't really waiting for something. Picture a cat waiting for a mouse. Can you see that? It waits and waits and waits at ease. And then as soon as the, cat, the mouse shows up, pounce. It's responsive. And I like to think of meditation practice like this. That meditation is a training in responsiveness. Because if you think of meditation through the lens of our bodhisattva vows, meditation practice is training us to be more responsive, more creative, less rehearsed, more composed. So if you follow that image of the cat, waiting for the mouse. The cat isn't waiting. The cat is composed. And maybe this would be a, a clearer definition of patience, which is composure. Patience is composure. It's non-dualistic activity. If you're waiting for something, 
then you're waiting for something else to happen. You have an idea of something else that's going to happen. When you're patient, you don't sit through difficulty. You welcome difficulty. Oh, this is my life right now. And when other trainings don't work, insight, generosity, concentration, whatever you're working on, when those things don't work, shanti, patience, is the best thing to fall back on. Just right here. Calming down, stopping. There's a wonderful story about a young boy named Motia Zenji, whose mother died. And his father, who was a longtime practitioner, sent him to Dogen's temple, Eheji. He told his son that when you get to the temple, the first job you're going to get is sweeping. So when you sweep, you should sweep with your whole body and your whole heart so that you're not just sweeping the ground, but you're sweeping your mind. And then the second job they are going to give you is ringing the temple bell. And when you do that job, you should imagine that as you ring the bell, you're waking up the hearts of all the practitioners. I've said this to a few of you timekeepers. I said, don't hit the bell. Ring the bell. And some of you may not know this, but during the work period, when all of you are chopping vegetables and cleaning, the timekeepers are here practicing that for half an hour. And, I, and the practice I say is when you ring the bell, imagine you're ringing everyone's heart, every single person's heart. So this is what this father said to his son. And um, so anyways, uh, his young son, oh, do you hear a theme in this story? Same theme in all of the stories I've been telling the past few days is all of these folks, the Buddha, Dogen, all of them lose their parent, one or both parents, before they're teenagers. It's interesting, isn't that? So anyways, um, he's at the temple, finishes the sweeping job, and gets the morning uh, bell uh, position. And um, he rings the bell for morning practice. Um, I don't know, but I'm going to guess it's like 3 or 4 AM. And um, <clears throat> the abbot of the temple hears the bell. And something inside of his heart shifts. And it's the same bell he's been hearing for decades, but he hears it in a new way. And when he goes back to his abbot's quarters, he says to his attendant, can you go find whoever rang the bell this morning? I need to speak with him. And they bring this timid boy in, who's you know, obviously so scared. <laughs> and he says, uh, did you ring the bell this morning? And the boy, thinking he's being scolded, says, y yes. And he says, um, what were you feeling when you rang the bell? And he said, uh, my mother passed away. 
And when that happened, my dad said to me, I should come to the temple and ring the bell as if I'm ringing everyone's heart. And the teacher said, I've never heard a bell in my heart. And now I want you to do all your activities like this. And then they bowed. I love this story. So I encourage you to do all your activities like this. This is prajna patience. It's not patience like, I'm going to be a more patient person. Remember we were talking about dana, how there's no gift because it never belonged to the giver. There's no giver and there's no other. Well, it's the same thing with patience. There's not a me trying to be patient. It's a sensibility. It's, it's, it's a composure. It's an attitude. It's an attitude. And you can have that attitude when you make your bed. I really see that attitude in the shoe placement. <laughs> I think there's a contemporary version of this story, which is there's a woman who lives in Hawaii named Kalama Masters, who's a Vipassana teacher. I believe she's actually taught here, and some of you might know her. Um, she had uh, four daughters and was a single mom. And um, she really wanted to go on a retreat with, at the time, a very famous meditation teacher named Munindra. <clears throat> who really inspired the insight meditation world of uh, like the insight meditation society, Joseph Goldstein and those folks. So anyways, she got, I'm sure, an immense amount of help so she could go on this retreat. And at the end of the retreat, Munindra said, like I'm going to say at the end of this retreat, every morning you should wake up before everyone in your house and you should sit for 45 minutes and follow your breathing. So she put up her hand and said, uh, it's impossible. I'm a mom of four kids. There's no way I can wake up in the morning before them and sit for 45 minutes. So he did the thing that all, all of us do. Yes, you can. You just need more enthusiasm, more commitment. You can do it. So she put up her hand and said, uh, no, uh, it's impossible. <laughs> There's no way. Um, So uh, at the end of the retreat, she went up to him and she said, Amunindra, um, would you come live with me? <laughs> like maybe for a couple of weeks. And he said, yeah. And he moved into her house for two weeks. And the story goes, on the second day, he came up to her and said, you know, there is no way. <laughs> There is no way that you can wake up before everyone else and go sit for 45 minutes. It's completely impossible. I, I like all the single mothers here laughing. But let me show you what you can do. And he started by um, walking with her back and forth along the hallway between the kitchen and the kids' bedrooms and teaching her really focused walking meditation. And then he took the cliche 
area of the kitchen sink and said, let's wash dishes together every meal. So we're only washing dishes. Karina said to me recently, you know, Michael, when you wash dishes, if you look at your feet, you always have one foot pointing away from the sink. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. So now when I wash dishes, I have two feet. And now I learned from Suniti that not only should I have two feet, but my knees should be available. Do you like that when she's teaching in the movement class, always saying, keep your knees available? So anyways, the story is, she just practiced in her domestic monastery. And uh, the person who told me this story told me that when she went on her next retreat several years later, she was like the most concentrated student. Because <laughs> she had really taken her environment and turned it into Kshanti Paramita, a place to practice patience beyond patience. So the most important thing is not necessarily what's happening in our environment, but how we relate to what's happening in our internal and external environment. And freedom is dependent on how we're relating to our internal and external environment. When I'm teaching, I, I try my best not to speak in a way that's too idealistic, not to create ideals that are impossible uh, to reach. So that's why I keep saying, you know, if you can't practice what we're learning in your life, then you're not going to stick with it. So it's really important to hear these teachings and then ask yourself, okay, am I embodying this? And the best way to do that on retreat is not just in here, but when you're moving around, to keep saying to yourself, am I separating from myself right now? Am I separating from my experience right now? And just really notice when that's happening. And that's also why when I'm teaching, I like to speak in the negative rather than the positive. So instead of saying, be more peaceful, be more compassionate, be more caring. I like to say, less grasping, less aversion, less greed, less reactivity. And then as you sit, all the extra layers that you add. In Zen, there's a saying, adding a head on top of your head. All those extra layers that you add just start to fall away. This morning after uh, our first sit when we went for breakfast and I looked around at everybody, I thought, oh, everybody looks so beautiful. Because it's true, like, this is something, I, I, many of you know about this on retreat, but after a few days, everyone's faces just get so soft again. I, I really mean that, like. <laughs> All those skin creams you're using are so expensive, you know. <laughs> Save that money and come on retreat. This is how we're going to market our next retreat. It's so good for your face. 
And the reason why I mention this is because what you start to see is that patience is not a quality you need to cultivate, but rather it's something that was there already. It was there already, but it was just covered over. And maybe instead of noticing where you're impatient, you should notice where you are patient. Notice where there is patience happening and build on that. Know what that feels like. This is the third noble truth, which is nirodaha, which is knowing cessation. Knowing what cessation feels like. Cessation of what? Cessation of reactivity. The first noble truth, as you all know, is um, dukkha. The second is uh, samudaya, which means arising. So the logic of that is, if the first noble truth is basically your life, when you turn towards your life, reactivity arises. And the third truth is nirodaha which is knowing what non-reactivity feels like. Knowing what non-reactivity feels like. All of us know what reactivity feels like. But what happens is, when you practice patience, when you are patience, when you practice mindfulness of breathing, when you are breathing, when you practice composure, when you are composure, then you develop a new reference point in yourself. And you start to know the calm, sane version of yourself. Oh, <laughs> we haven't met in so many years. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean by that? We find again that calm, sane version of ourselves. I like to think of it as factory settings. <laughs> we go back to factory settings, which basically means you turn into your parents. <laughs> Some karmic patterns that you've brought to retreat with you, they just need time and space and community in order for them to unwind. If coming into retreat you did something stupid, then it comes in like a shadow in your body and in your breathing. And then it's really important to look at that shadow, to feel the effect of your actions. Maybe you're ashamed, someone said this the other night to me, that they're ashamed of how they've been behaving. So, bring patience to that. Bring patience to shame. And this is such a hard thing for all of us, I think, is to see things about ourselves that are really embarrassing or unskillful, and just to see it. Like the power of just seeing it without then referring it back to a me that's bad. Just see patterns that need attention without like personalizing it so much. 
So this leads to a new insight for me, which is I decided to look up because nowadays, thanks to the University of Cologne, there is an amazing new online Sanskrit dictionary that's like a synthesis of all the Sanskrit and Pali dictionaries. <clears throat> and I found out something very interesting, which is that if you wanted to back translate the word forgiveness in English, if you wanted to find a word in Sanskrit for the English word forgiveness, it would be kshanti. Isn't that interesting? That this term that means patience, endurance, or tolerance is also the English word forgiveness. When we're patient, we can forgive ourselves and others. So that's why I never like to say, just let go of everything. I think it's more courageous to practice in a way where you're not just trying to let go of everything or go into a trance. I think I talked about this yesterday. But instead, um, we're opening up to the consequences of our experience, the echo of our past experiences. I think you can try and develop a samadhi that tries to get over the top of karma, but ultimately, it's a dead end. To have patience with the consequences of our actions, to feel how our hearts are bruised by other people's actions, and to open to that and to work with that rather than making meditation a solo, a silo, you know, where you just turn inward and have private experiences. But also to see that as you turn inward, uh, the whole world is embedded in that inwardness. If you feel free and creative only when you're comfy, then that's not freedom. That's not being free. Now when I hear the air conditioning, I like see Nathan tinkering in the basement. <laughs> so I'd like to offer a one more practice. Um, I feel like with this paramita, for some reason, it's important to be kind of practical with it. You know? So another practice that you can explore on the retreat here is um, when you feel something arises, arise, um, that's um, starting be to become very dominant in your awareness, try taking the word just and placing it in front of your labeling of that experience. So for example, if you're hungry and the hunger is starting to be really dominant in your awareness, say, just hungry. Rather than, I'm hungry, say, just hungry. If you're tired, just wedge a just in front of it. Just tired. Can you picture this? Just tired. 
if you're irritated. Just irritated. <laughs> Another thing I've been saying to the timekeepers is before you ring the bell, take the striker and put it on the bell. And just take a slow inhale and exhale. And it's not just for yourself. It's also because there's this like psychic energy in the room, especially in the evening, when people are feeling a little impatient, where they're sending negative energy to the timekeeper. <laughs> so I say to the timekeeper, put your baton on the bell and just like hang out there a minute and like breathe with that and settle that in the room. It's a true thing. It's a true thing. There's a lot of project. I used to think there was a lot of projection on the teacher, but it's not true. Most of the projection's on the timekeeper. <laughs> Why do I bring this up? Because um, when you experience something that's really hard for you to tolerate, uh, the first thing that we do is we blame. So when there's an absence of patience in the space where there was once patience, blame arises. And the blame can be inward, or the blame can be outward. If you start blaming, patience is required. If you have a problem and the blame is a quick solution, then that's okay. Like for example, if you have a migraine headache and you blame it on this you know, chemical trouble you have, or a whiplash or whatever, then blame it on the whiplash, take a migraine headache pill. And that kind of blame is okay. <laughs> but when you start putting a lot of energy into blame, it's really important that you take care of it because there's probably no remedy. The remedy is here. And if you go down that blaming road too much, and some of you might know people like this, you become a bitter person. We all know people like this. It's after a bad divorce, and you become jaded and cynical. I was like this. I remember when Karina and I met, and I was in a previous relationship. We had a few dates, and then we had a dinner once, and I brought a list to the dinner. <laughs> of all the things that I don't want to do. I, I don't want to have kids again. I don't want to live under the same roof, roof with the person that I'm with. And she agreed to all these things. She's like, I don't want to have kids. <laughs> I don't want to live with you. <laughs> well, you know where that went. <laughs> If you have a strong container that we develop in this sitting practice to be with what's unpleasant and also to be with what's pleasant without grasping it, then you won't become cynical and you won't become a victim. Because you start to see that avoiding pain all the time diminishes your human beingness. An opening to life is such a better life. An opening to others 
is such a better life. And then we start to have a little more respect for ourselves. Patience is also really important when you feel anger. I understand how people justify anger. I spent a lot of time the past couple years in Greece and other countries where austerity is killing young people. And I understand uh, the importance of, of the mobilizing energy of anger. But in my experience, uh, even though anger is mobilizing, can get people into the streets, it's actually not so effective. In activist worlds, you see this. The angry people are amazing at gathering energy, but they can't collaborate. They can't um, be allies for people because they can't communicate, because they can't take in other viewpoints. When I other you, when I blame you, and I really believe that, I feel justified because I've decided that you're bad, even though I've never really talked with you about this. I just go with my blind emotions. So then I attack you with my body or with my mind or with speech. And then you get defensive because you don't want to be attacked. And then you attack me. And then everybody gets hurt by the anger. The physical world gets hurt, our communities get hurt, our families get hurt. And we also know that it's so bad for our health. But let's not be naive. Sometimes there are people who've hurt us and we need to cut them out of our life. I went through this this year where somebody was causing me so much trouble. And I had to say, I, I don't want to communicate with you anymore. And it was such a hard lesson to learn. So um, one of the things I learned is that if I kept staying really patient with what I was feeling, there was this like ratio that started to develop between anger and sadness. And what I started to see was that if you want, do you ever see pictures of bodhisattvas with like sharp swords? You know? Like sometimes you have to take that sword and you have to say no. You have to cut this out of your life, whether it's a person or it's an intoxicant or whatever it is. But when you do that, you should feel more sad than angry. And this really helped me through this situation. As I kept saying to myself, we should have an app <laughs> where like when you're ending a relationship, you wear it around your neck, it should sit right over your heart, and it should monitor like how much anger, how, how much hostility, how much sadness. Because a bodhisattva is not a passive person. And this is where these teachings different, are different than contemporary non-dual teachings or Eckhart Tolle or people like this, which is, this is not a passive practice. It's an active practice. It's an engaged practice. You don't just stand by 
you do radical things. And from the outside, it sometimes might look violent. But a bodhisattva has tried a million things because they have a million tools, because they have a million arms. So get angry, then take five minutes. <laughs> Your mother was right. <laughs> get upset, take five more breaths. Don't send the email right away. And that's the bodhisattva of patience. She takes five more minutes. And then in that five more minutes, more tools show up, more options show up. They don't lash out. If a tablecloth is needed, a bodhisattva appears as a tablecloth. You know someone who's a drinker, they're ill, they're in the hospital, and they want a whiskey, you run out and you get them a whiskey. And the bodhisattva appears for them as whiskey. If it's hot and someone's thirsty, a bodhisattva appears as water. If you're on South Salt Spring, a bodhisattva appears as Wi-Fi. <laughs> Keeping ourselves really busy is a very silent source of unhappiness. And maybe kshanti is the antidote, which is knowing how to be patient, knowing how to be bored, knowing how to be still, and knowing how to be interested in all of those moods without having to jump out of them. So one thing that I always learn on retreat again and again and again is that to really live fully is to live in the time being that you can't experience your life outside of this moment. And that this moment is changing. In one of his fascicles, Dogen says, here leaps off of here. This moment leaps off of this moment. So let go. Shift, now it's a new moment. Don't hold on. That's why sometimes I think, instead of defining mindfulness the way we define it in our society now, of paying attention, what if we thought of mindfulness as mourning? The ability to mourn. The, the ability to enter this moment and not hold on to it. Here, leaps off of here. So here's my a request of you, is um, practice with each moment 
as it changes, but treat each and every moment as the beginning and the middle and the end of your life. The very beginning, the middle, and the end of your life, right there, right here. And I'll do the same. And when we do this, we balance our hearts, we train our hearts, and we allow in a Sangha. And then we're happier. I never use the word happy, but it's really true. <laughs> you actually get happier. <laughs> and the best thing is when we're happy, all of us together. So um, I thought that we could end the Dharma talk a little differently today um, by chanting. Because usually our chanting is in the evening and in the morning, but I thought that we could uh, end the talk by chanting. I like how everyone just changed their posture in order to chant. You don't even know what you're going to chant, and you're like, okay, I'm getting ready to chant. Okay. So you all know this chant already. Um, so I'm going to start, and we'll, we'll chant it together. You ready? Take a deep breath. The more we get together, 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 the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Because your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. more we get together, the happier we'll be.